The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Turn your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I said, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and through the years, Christians have celebrated Advent, kind of marking out these first, these four Sundays leading into Christmas as times for special devotion to, to, to turn our mind's attention on the promises of the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ, and the promises of his second coming. And maybe you're like Kathy and I, where we have, had, we have established our own traditions of Advent. We have, we have set up Advent candles. We've done Advent readings. We have a nativity set. Actually, we've got a huge nativity set. Um, we have banners that will go up in our home, uh, wreaths. Uh, I'll turn on the carols. I didn't do this yet. Some years I turn them on, you know, the, the minute after Thanksgiving dinner is done, but I'm behind. So, I mean, just, you know, bring them in. You know, when do you sing? When do you, when do you turn on the carols? You, you know, it doesn't work in June. So just trying to cash in on the carols and the great... Uh, church music that's ours, all revolving around Christmas, uh, family and personal worship, Bible readings on Advent. Just, I'm just encouraging you to take advantage of this Advent season accordingly. And we ask God for His spiritual blessings on us this Advent season as a church. Beginning this morning, we'll begin tracking each Sunday through the four traditional Advent themes. This morning, hope. Next Sunday, peace. The following Sunday, love. And then the fourth Sunday of Advent, joy. 
leading into Christmas Eve where we'll gather at 4 p.m. for a candlelight service of scriptures and carols and then Sunday morning, which is Christmas morning, December 25th, we'll meet at 10 a.m. for a special Christmas worship service. So, my aim this morning in this first Advent sermon is that you and I live in the light of the hope of Christ Jesus. We live there. That is to say that my aim is that you not remain or venture into the darkness and gloom and hopelessness there is apart from Christ. But that you live in the light of the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. I'll give you my outline. My outline is, is, uh, is this. Three points. Number one, the zeal of the Lord. And it's really a theological point. It's, it's not so exegetically, it's not an exegetical summary of the layout of the passage. It's the last clause of the last verse of our text because it's so theologically important. I gave it its own point. The zeal of the Lord. Point number two, the deep darkness of hopelessness that's described in Isaiah 6, Isaiah, no, excuse me, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, and then point number three, the great light of hope that is our text in Isaiah chapter 9. (laughs) And that hope just rests on this first point the zeal of the Lord. So let's get to the first point. Zeal of the Lord. Like I said, it's the last clause there in verse 7, chapter 9. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The the word zeal carries the the sense of ardor, fervor, this fierce, strong passion of God. This is his passion for his glory. It's his passion to uphold and display the glory of his name, who he is, and, and what he's all about. He, he, he wants to display that so people will see it and it will be acknowledged for who he is. This is the reason, this zeal of the Lord, this passion for his glory, this is the reason that God does everything he does. Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him And to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the reason God created everything for his glory. This is the reason he created us human beings, male and female, in his image for the glory of his name. Why did God save his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt? Psalm 106.8. For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Why does God forgive sin? I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins, Isaiah forty-three twenty-five. In other words, God forgives sins so that he displays his glory as a righteous, merciful sin forgiver. He gets the glory and we get the forgiveness and the grace and the joy. This is not bad news. This is good news. 
in this zeal, Jesus lived for the glory of God. In his life, in his teachings, in his suffering, and in his death. Shortly before his death, he says, For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. John twelve twenty seven. Why did God save us by his mercy through the death of Christ? So that we would be to the praise of his glorious grace forever and ever and ever. Ephesians 1, 6 and 14. And in this zeal for the glory of his name, God will see to it that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. (laughs) What God sets out to do in his zeal, he will do. It will happen. Nothing and no one stands in his way. This is, his, this is his righteousness and his, his holiness to uphold the glory of his name. For him to uphold anything else would be idolatry. This is his love for us that he shows us the glory of his name. Because who else should he show us to worship? In this zeal for the glory of his name, God does everything he does. It it does map with our mission statement. God is zealous to spread a passion for his supremacy in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. This is what he has done. This is what he's doing. This is what he will do forever. That's point number one. So now, point number two, the deep darkness of hopelessness. Isaiah 7 and 8, leading into our text in chapter 9. The context in Isaiah is this deep darkness of hopelessness. And it begs the question, what's God going to do in this zeal for his name in this context? So God had declared judgment on his people because they had sinned and forsaken him. And as a result, the armies of Assyria, Israel's Gentile neighbor to the north, had invaded Israel. Isaiah 8, 7 and 8. Marching into the land surrounding the Sea of Galilee, the land that belonged to the Israeli tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. I just said some key words you need to remember. Assyria invaded the area surrounding the Sea of Galilee and the lands belonging to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. The people would be taken captive and they'd be taken away, enslaved, and the land would be destroyed. Isaiah 7, 36. 
in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. So they're going to get taken over, or they have been taken over by Assyria as we look back in history. And, I mean, how do you respond? How do you respond in your own suffering for the consequences of your own sins? How do you respond? You, know, you make a mess of your life or this situation or this relationship or your soul. How do you respond? Consequences of your sin are coming in on you. There's two responses, I think in general, two responses in, in the text. One is hope, and one is hopelessness. Hope. Isaiah, along with a small band of others, hope in the Lord in the midst of the destruction of their land and their nation. Isaiah says of himself in Isaiah 8, 17, I will wait for the Lord. The word wait can be translated hope. Same word. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. And, and Isaiah, along with those who hope in him, they don't look for answers from, from the people from the people here on earth that are talking, the sorcerers, the mediums, or the spirits of the dead in this text. Isaiah rallies the people to look in hope to the Word of God. I mean, the equivalent might be, you know, don't look for hope in your despair to the, the self-help podcasts or books or self-understanding or the, the cultural analysis or the futurists or the pundits, the political pundits or the ideal, uh, ideologues. Rather, Isaiah says, to the teaching. This is verse, this is verse uh, uh, 8, chapter 8, 19 and 20. Isaiah says, you know, where should we look? To the teaching, to the testimony. If they, the sorcerers and all, will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Hear the image of dawn? They don't have any light. It's dark. These people are talking. We're looking around at each other for hope and light. And he says, they don't have any light. Look to the word. Look to the testimony. That's the response of hope in contrast to the response of hopelessness. In response to God's judgment and military defeat and devastation, most of the people of Israel do not turn to God in hope, but are hopeless in their unbelief. They are, quote, greatly distressed and hungry, Isaiah 8, 21. And on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with being hungry. But here's how they respond. With rage and anger and contempt against their king and against their God. 
There's the unbelief. And they look not to God in hope, but rather, verse 22 says, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. They will, they will be thrust into thick darkness, Isaiah eight twenty-two. It's dark. It's bleak. There's no hope to be found on earth, only distress and more darkness and, and the gloom of anguish. It's a hopelessness without God. And it's dark. It is really dark. Point number three. The great light of hope. Now we're in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. I mean, th- this, this little passage just builds. I mean, as I'm understanding it, it just builds with hope. Boom, 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 right at the end. <laughs> I think I got five points under it. It's just peak. Yeah, five, five points. Building with hope. So let's look at them. Number one. God will bring glory and light. Verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her her who was in anguish. And in the former time, he, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun. Remember that word? And the land of Naphtali. God is going to act in these very lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, the area around the Sea of Galilee. He, he's he's going to remove the gloom for her who was in anguish. And in the place of gloom, verse 1 goes on to say, in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land belonging to the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. He's going to make glorious this, this same place where there was gloom. And verse 2 adds, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Gloom being replaced with glory. Deep darkness being replaced with this great light shining. What is he talking about? When is this going to happen? Keep a finger in Isaiah 9, and you've got to turn to Matthew 4. You just have to turn there. You want to turn, I say, in your Bible, in your uh, phone. Tap there. Um, Matthew 4, 12. See, this is the account at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew 4, 12. Now when he, that is Jesus, heard that John the Baptist had been arrested... He withdrew into Galilee. <laughs> Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee in the territory of Zebulun, there it is again, and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And the quote comes from Isaiah 9, the part we just read. 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. For the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's the light? It's Jesus is coming. Point number two. God will increase the nation in numbers and in joy. Verse three. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So God, for the glory of his name, will multiply his chosen people and they will rejoice. They will increase in joy. Like the joy, the joy you have after something's done. That's what I get in the harvest. The harvest is done. That's when you're happy. The, the battle is over. The triumph. You divide the spoils, it's done. So increased numbers, increased joy. <laughs> I, I couldn't help but, but flash to Revelation I could pick several places in Revelation where the glimpse of heaven and the worship of God's people for all eternity is described as this great multitude worshiping God with joy, people from every tongue and tribe singing hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. That's point number two. Point number three, God will free his people. I could stop right there. God will free his people, I added, from enslavement and oppression. Verse four. You know, I think of enslavement and, and oppression. True in the prophecy about the Assyrians and true in the prophecy about the triumph of, triumph of Christ over all God's enemies, over sin and over Satan. Isaiah 9, 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. God will remove the yoke of oppression. He'll break the oppressor's rod as on the day of Midian. And you're thinking, what's the day of Midian? <laughs> what's the day of Midian? You could, you could do the turning if you want to back to Judges chapter 6 and 7. The day of Midian is the day that God miraculously overthrew the Midianites. And I, and I have to give you a glimpse of the story because it makes clear that the big deal in this victory is the glory of God's name, the zeal for his glory. At that time, God had given over his people, Israel, into the hand of the Midianites for seven years because, quote, 
the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, Judges 6, 1. And the Midianites overtook the the nation. They pillaged the land and oppressed the people. And when God's people planted crops, Judges 6, 4 says, the Midianites would come against them and devour the produce and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or oxen or donkey. And uh, Judges 6, 6 says, Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Dark. And in their despair, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, God, help us. And the Lord answered, and he raised up an unlikely leader in Gideon to lead the people to victory over the Midianites. So now, I have to smile because of these numbers. Um, Gideon had an army of 32,000 warriors, but God in his zeal for his glory said to Gideon, send 22,000 of them away. We don't need need them. (laughs) So they're down to 10,000, and and God directs Gideon to, well, have those 10,000 kneel by a stream, by a brook, and and we'll sort them out. And, And then God observes that just 300 of the men drink like this. You know, they scoop up the water with their hands. The other ones put their faces in the water. And, and God says, well, let those face-in-the-water guys go. We're down to 300. We're going we're gonna, we're gonna to conquer the Midianites with 300. And just so you know percentages, send 99.9% of the army away. God said, I got this. And I did the math. I mean, that's right. <laughs> 99.9% of the army. Oh, wait, we're going to do this with 0.1. <laughs> Why did God do it this way? So that it would be clearly seen that this victory was owing to God. This is the zeal of the Lord of hosts that's doing it this way. That God's sovereign might and mercy might be displayed so that Israel would not boast and say, this is Judges 7, 2, my own hand has saved me because Israel's hand was too weak and too puny (laughs) to do it. This victory was from God and from God alone to the praise of his name. That's the day of Midian. God wants to make it really clear that he saves his people. His people do not save themselves. And he will do it in a way that no human being may boast before him. He will not give his glory to another. So, we're at the end of point number three. So God will bring glory and light. That's point number one. God will increase the people in numbers and in joy. That's point number two. God will set his people free from bondage and oppression. He will save his people. That's number Three, here's number four. God will turn the defeat of our enemies for our good. Verse five adds this to the prophecy. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's this gory, ancient battle talk. 
What's he saying here? What's Isaiah saying? Well, every boot with which the enemy trampled on your land and trampled on you, trampled on your people, and every uniform, every garment that that enemy army wore that is now defeated, is drenched in blood, this enemy's been defeated. Those boots and those uniforms, God will use to start a fire to keep you warm and for you to cook your food on. <laughs> I mean, I think, what do you do in the ancient days with fire? <laughs> so the enemy stuff, God will use for your good, for your benefit. The point here is the same as Joseph's point when he spoke this to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. You know, remember? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. It's the same as Paul's point in Romans 8, 28, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword, Paul says in Romans 8, 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. So, number one, God will bring glory and light to this people in darkness. Number two, God will increase the people in numbers and in joy. Number three, God will set his people free. He'll save them. Number four, he will turn the defeat of our enemies to our good. And then it climaxes in my mind in number five, verses six and seven. Four, unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is, this is the capstone of the hope. God will give us a son the promised Christ, the promised Messiah to, to reign as king forever on David's throne. And verse 6 tells us, what's this Messiah, Christ King, like? What's, his, what's he like? What's his character like? His name, which is his glory, his reputation, his renown, will be, is, is described in these four divine names in the text. Wonderful counselor. He's all wise. He's all knowing. His understanding is limitless. His wisdom is unsearchable. When he acts, he acts with infinite wisdom. When he teaches, he teaches pure and utter truth, wisdom. Such a, when Jesus spoke, his, his uh, his hearers were amazed. This is Matthew 13, 52. Like, where did this guy get this wisdom? 
In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3 says. What's he? What's this child who's coming to reign like? Wonderful counselor. He's infinite in his wisdom. Mighty God. He's God Almighty. Omnipotent. All-powerful. He has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases. All authority in heaven and on earth. He upholds the universe with the word of his power. And in the struggle against cosmic powers over this present darkness, principalities and powers, evil forces. He triumphs. He is the mighty God. When he acts, nothing and no one can hold back his hand or thwart his power (coughs) or his will. He's infinite in power. He is the everlasting Father. What's this Christ Messiah like? Everlasting Father. He loves as a father loves. He's compassionate and caring as a good father. He's approachable. He provides for his people. And his Fatherly love is everlasting. He'll never turn away, never forsake us. And in him is life. He's the author of our life, this Jesus Christ. His his name will be called Prince of Peace. In his reign, he will bring about eternal peace. Perfect peace, peace with God, peace on earth between peoples and nations. And he will bring about peace in your soul. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. The great Hebrew word shalom is here the full and perfect happiness and blessedness of all things being made right under King Jesus Christ. Next week's Advent theme is peace. And Pastor John will be preaching on that theme from Isaiah chapter 53. So now, let me conclude. So God will bring glory and light. In the midst of the darkness, God will bring glory and light, number one. He will increase the people and increase them in numbers and in joy. He will will defeat our enemies and save us. Not only that, but the ultimate promise for our eternal good and everlasting joy that God promised here is to give us a son, his son, Christ Jesus, 
the, the Christ, the Messiah, to come and reign forever, verse 7, on the throne of David. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This reign of Christ, the child that we celebrate his birth at Christmas, this reign of Christ <laughs> will increase forever and ever, will never end, and there's a day coming when everyone on earth and under the earth and in heaven will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our hope. This is our hope, the coming of Christ Jesus. He's come once, and, and my hope and burden and plea is that you put your hope in him. Don't stay in the darkness. You may have known only darkness. Come on in. Put your faith in Christ. We'd love to talk to you. Or you might be a believer who's known the light, and for one reason or another, your, your world is just filling with this darkness. And I hope and pray from this text that God would bring a great light into your world by the promise of Christ Jesus. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word. Thanks so much for this word. And oh, how we pray to know the fullness and, and more and more and more of the fullness of who Christ is and the hope that is ours in him. So may the brightness of our hope in Christ shine in our hearts and from our hearts into the lives of those around us this Advent season, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.